Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, Lesson 10 on the Truth of Our Faith, on the Second Coming of Christ, and on Chiliasm. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant us also fear of thy blessed commandments, to tread on all carnal desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. But thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and of thee we send of glory, with an unoriginate Father, a holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Κατά πέμψας αυτής το Πνεύμα το Αγίον και δι' Αυτόν την οικουμένης αγινεύσας φιλάνθρωπε δόξασή. The prayers of the Holy Father, Jesus Christ, the God of merciness and saviors. Amen. All right. So let's uh, open up our text. And uh, we're going to be dealing with two topics tonight, two chapters. The first is going to be fairly quickly. I think it's something that a lot of the topics, uh, a lot of the... Uh, the questions that are asked are probably going to be fairly straightforward for most of us. So we're going to get to the second chapter. The first chapter we're dealing with is on the second coming of Christ. This icon here, by the way, is a beautiful, ancient, and interesting icon. I don't know if you're familiar with it. We use it in our Orthodox Ethos Twitter account as our kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, mast or whatever, the header. And this... this uh, this, this image here has a it's just a phenomenal history. You can find it in the Synaxarian of uh, Father Macadios from Simono Petra, the sixth volume. I forget the day right now that is celebrated, or that is remembered, but it's remembered uh, along with a saint who was from Syria. And this is about the, uh, I want to say this is about the time of the iconoclast period. And what had happened was, this image was found in Thessaloniki, is found today, in this, to this day, in Thessaloniki, in the monastery of the church of Osios David. It's on the upper half of the old city, in a small monastery-like church in the, above the altar. There we, we usually have the Platitera. Uh, this image rests, it's a mosaic. <clears throat> they date it. Believe it or not, they date it to before Constantine the Great. We're talking about the early 4th century. 
that's the story uh, and the and the historical um, uh, the story the historians actually dated to this period. This monk was in Syria and he was praying. How how will Lord uh, how will the uh, you look at the second at your second coming? And uh, he was praying, you know, fervently. How will you appear? And the Lord said to him, "Get up and go to Thessaloniki, and you will see. You will see how I appear." And he he got up and he made the the trip from Syria all the way up to Thessaloniki. He arrived, and because it was the it was uh, the iconoclast period, and the the image had already passed what through four centuries more or less, uh, the the image was covered up by plaster with another image over it. And so he didn't see anything. And he returned to Syria and he was very disappointed and he prayed and again the Lord appeared to him and said, no, get up and go back to Thessaloniki and see the image of how I appeared the second coming. And he did that and the there was an earthquake, either before or during his visit, I forget, and the plaster fell and was revealed this beautiful image, which of course became well known, and I think this had either just happened, the uh, iconoclast period had just ended, maybe, at this point. In any case, he, he sees this image, and so this image uh, was both revealed then, and it, the history was kind of revealed with it, and that it was an image of our Lord coming in the second coming. It's, uh, it's pictured here with the, the different prophets on the right and left. Uh, and so I've always really loved this image very much. When I saw it the first time when I visited Thessaloniki in 1996, or rather 1998, the second time when I came to Thessaloniki. And so um, it's a really unique image. I mean, it has Christ here in an obviously very ancient way because we didn't, Really, we don't see images like this until much later, or much earlier. Later images have him, uh, as we see him, for instance, on Mount Sinai, the famous icon of Christ on Mount Sinai, or as we see behind me, uh, that's much more common. Whereas this this appears more uh, in the catacombs in the first centuries. So there's about that image. So we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ and the questions that are coming from our inquirer here are, uh, well, I see everybody's, people are talking about Elder Ephraim and his memorial service. Yeah, that's, it's been one year, unbelievable. One year has passed. Uh, that that was uh, quite an event for those of you who were able to make it to the, to the memorial, or the, the funeral, and now this year we had the, they had the memorial service for one year. It's very interesting that as somebody noticed, noticed, uh, noted recently in a uh, podcast in Greek, the elder reposed on the seventh, and the very and the very first uh, report of of people sick with the viruses was on the eighth in China, and the elder himself said, and it's been, it's been become well known uh, that. He, uh, he said, I will not be here for the great events that will occur, but right, uh, right after my repose, they will begin. Uh, and he said, uh, he said uh, that, uh, in fact, we will have, I was told this actually during the funeral uh, last year, before the services, 
think it was on Tuesday and we had services on Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. And I was told this by one of the elders that the elder had said in 2008, after my repose, they will have a massive economic crisis, a worldwide economic crisis, and then the great, many of the great events that we are expecting will begin, including a massive war. That was told to me last year at the funeral. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time, well, America's economically in very good shape. In fact, people are boasting it's been never been better. It's, the numbers are amazing and all this all the rest of that, and I couldn't imagine where this economic crisis is going to come from. Of course, who could have that because of a supposed virus, the whole world would shut down and economically people would be thrown uh, into chaos, and that's exactly what we're witnessing. So when March came around and these things started to happen, uh, I remembered the, uh, the words of the elder that were laid to me, and it's really quite amazing, the events we've lived ever since. And it began the day after his repose, essentially. It was made known, this whole process of uh, you know, signs of our times that we're living through. Anyway, I just saw that in the chat box that I'd relate that to him, to you, as a kind of memorial to the great elder, because he has, he has uh, stood out for the Orthodox Church in the last uh, 50 years as one of the greatest elders of our day, one of the greatest saints of our day. May we have his blessing. And may he guide us through his prayers through these uh, days that we're going to be facing. So getting back to our topic, the Enquirer is coming to us and... Yeah, no problem. Yeah, well, we can talk about those in the questions. If you have a question or something, you can ask me. Yes, uh, Kate. Yeah, I'm happy to share with you. Uh, remind me or ask a question on that topic. So the question is, when will the second coming occur? When will it occur? When will it occur? By the way, on the left, we have the famous icon of St. John the Theologian. In the This is in the cave of... St. John the Theologian, where the, where the vision of the Revelation occurred on the island of Patmos. If you go there, uh, you will see this uh, image, massive image on the right side of the uh, church in the cave there, showing the book of Revelation, one, one of the scenes of the, the Lord coming and the uh, seven, seven candlesticks and all the rest. That's St. John the Theologian having the vision of our Lord. So, uh, famous icon. And the question is, do we know the date? And there are many Protestants who thought they did know the date. And it's, uh, of course, anyone who has a cursory reading of Holy Scripture will know that no one knows the date. In fact, our Lord said that only my Father knows of that day and that hour, not the angels of heaven, but only my Father knows. But he says, very interestingly, they will be like the days of Noah before the flood. And they will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Watch therefore, for you know not the hour that your Lord doth come. So 
this is the basic teaching that's been with us for 2,000 years. There have been, unfortunately, very tragic personalities, especially the last 200 years, who have ignored this teaching and suppose that they know the day and the hour. As this, this um, uh, inquirer apparently has uh, not learned, so it will be uninspected. The appearance will be unexpected for those who are uh, on the earth. Um, the inquirer comes back and says, Yes, but we know that the apostles uh, were made aware of all. It says uh, the time of Pentecost. Uh, the spirit of truth will come and guide you in all things and and he interprets this, therefore, as them knowing also the second coming. But then it's interesting, in the very question he's asking, he says, uh, but they'll be able to determine things through Holy Scripture. And this is the, the Protestant mind can't get out of that paradigm that, that it has to be through the written Scripture that the revelation or the knowledge will come. Even when he says, well, Pentecost gave us all knowledge. We have a chrismation, it says also in the book of the letters of John, and you know all things. Well, what does it mean to know all things? And the elder explains to us. He begins by telling us about these tragic people like Joseph Chimes or William Miller in the 1840s who said, yes, we know the date, and they actually they said the date. Of course, the date came and went, nothing happened, and they were disgraced. Uh, they were mocked, and the people who were deluded by them, of course, were very angry. And this has happened many times uh, for a variety of reasons in these Protestant sects, these Protestant uh, sectarian. And it's tragic that even though they pour over the scriptures and they say the scriptures have everything in them, they, uh, they, because they do not have the uh, enlightenment of God, the spirit of God, they make a mess of it. And one of the main things here that we that the elder doesn't go very deep on that I want to talk about is that the, one of the reasons why you cannot know the date. Why is it? There's, of course, there's a mystery there. and We don't know everything, but one of the things that's been revealed and is clear if we are um, following the Holy Fathers is that the, the date is impossible to know because in part... In part, the date is based upon man's repentance and, and his freedom. And insofar as men are repenting, then these dates are, pu are pushed back. And that's, that's been uh, taught by the church from the beginning, and it's been reiterated in our day by uh, Athenite elders and uh, Metropolitan of Morfu uh, in a recent talk said the same thing again. And that's why the... The, the, uh, the signs uh, and the, the time of the end is the teaching of the churches that that began with the first coming and ends with the second coming. And we're in the end times from the beginning we've been in the end times. In fact, the, the end times began with the coming of our Lord, the first coming. Uh, so the events that are prophesied are the events surrounding the ascent of Antichrist. And they are signs, but even then we, we cannot say for sure with those signs that are approaching and they're multiplying that therefore we know that within six years or seven years or ten years 
the second coming will is is for sure we know that it is close we know that the signs are many but because there is always room for repentance there's always room for those those the uh, second coming to be pushed back and it's a mystery uh how man's freedom so valued by our lord and is is going to play a role in when he comes back and of course because of his love he pushes the date back right so that more people will repent and more people will come to the knowledge of of christ and so this is a, an important important interpretive key in this whole thing and why we need to constantly as the church never stop preaching repentance never stop living uh you know we don't become crazy conspiracy theorists thinking that the uh, let's sell everything not get married not have children there's no teachings in the fathers anywhere like that uh of course the call for monasticism and virginity and all the rest is always present so therefore the the preaching for just to live uh with your mind and your heart turned to god and it's always present right it's how we should live anyway but we're not going to stop the 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 day-to-day functions of our life in this society and and uh with because there is always room for repentance so it's a it's a both and as as so much is in the church right both always living in that eschatological stance with your mind in the in the in the end and we're always living with uh the 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 uh, thought of our death and also being watchful for the signs of our second coming and yet at the same time we're living on a day-to-day basis without fear without uh hysteria uh you know going through our day daily struggle so the uh inquirer comes back and says well you know apostle paul says that we're not in darkness the, we should not be in darkness the, the, the day should not should overtake us as a thief uh, you are children of the light, children of the day, therefore you're not in darkness. And therefore, because he said that, we should know the date of the second coming, which is a non-sequitur, it's a total a total uh, misinterpretation and taken out of context, and a selective reading, as the, as the elder says immediately, as is so common. Uh, all these errors come because they don't have the Catholic, the, the whole picture, right? Piecemeal, that's what heresy is. Heresy is I take one little piece one little part, and I make it the whole, and I focus on that alone, or I, I, to the detriment of the whole, and so this is exactly what he's doing here. He's uh, selective reading out of context, and uh, he says, "Well, look, you got to look at the the verses before that, verse one and two. You left out of the times and the seasons, the brethren. You have no need that I write to you, for you subs uh, know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night." So. We don't know the day of the Lord, but it's, it's possible to know the approaching signs, the approach of the second coming by the signs. And some of these signs the Lord, the elder gives here, not in particular order, uh, but uh, nonetheless, these things have to happen. And, and these are very, very important to remember because without these, uh, these signs and these things in mind, we can, we can t- mistake the uh, antichrist for the antichrist the many that have come and gone and will come again or we can take the uh, different uh, forerunning signs uh, or forerunning uh, marks of the beast for the final mark of the beast there are 
uh, what we call in Greek prodromika. They're 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 forerunners to the mark. They they they, rem- they remind us of it. They point to it without them it actually being the mark of the beast. In other words, the sign of the Antichrist, which they they will take uh, the number of the beast, which they will take in the end. The very last days, the last seven years, uh, where the Antichrist has ascended and is is uh, is visible, uh, there will be that mark. Which there will be no repentance after that mark is taken, because it will be a conscious acceptance uh, of uh, of the Antichrist as the Savior and a denial of the baptism. So. People are asking about this 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 upcoming vaccination. Maybe this is the mark. It cannot be the mark if it is not connected directly to a question of faith, a question of allegiance, a question of subjection to the Antichrist as a person. So this cannot be the mark if we're, if we're following the teachings of Holy Scripture. It is, and it does appear to be, I should say it does appear to be, I'm not... I'm 90% sure it is, but I cannot say for 100%. We'll see as the thing is rolled out because there's so much mystery behind it. These vaccines that are coming out, I should say. Not one, there's many. Um, but it does appear to be a kind of mark, uh, like a type of the mark, because of the way it, it, the people are, are saying it will be a mandatory, it will be mandatory. Insofar as it's mandatory, it's global, that reminds us of the mark of the beast. But again, it's not going to be slipped in. Doesn't mean we should take it. Doesn't mean we should take it. I'm not talking about whether we should take it right now, but I'm just saying whether this is the mark, the the uh, mark of the beast. Uh, that does not appear to be the case. It's still, and this is what is said by several very prominent confessors of the faith, Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphu, who is a great source of orthodox teachings in our day and age says the same that these are not uh we're not yet there these things are going to take place but uh, we're not yet there we'll get to those uh so the preaching of the gospel has to go through the world still some people say well didn't it already happen through the protestants it's got to be the orthodox preaching of the gospel according to saint john of shanghai in san francisco and i think metropolitan Neophytos and others today would agree with that. The orthodox preaching of the gospel. You might say, well, how's that going to happen? We're the orthodox preaching of the gospel. It seems like it's impossible. But in fact, that's exactly what the uh, the contemporary elders are saying will has to happen. And why there will be, and this is a point of great controversy even among orthodox, there will be a intervention in history of our Lord precisely to enable that preaching. That's that's been taught by uh, apparently by Saint Paisius the Athenite. There's a lot of controversy in the Greek world, uh, but much more outside uh, about th- exactly what these these prophecies that we have from our elders, uh, how we unpack them. So it's a bit murky. We, we can talk about that hopefully, uh, if not now, in the future lessons. Uh, so the preaching of the gospel has to happen. The turn of the Jews to Christianity after the preaching of the gospel in the entire world. So that's that's a, that's a very important thing. We have very clear witness in the Revelation that the two prophets uh, of the Old Testament will return and preach repentance and there will be a returning of many Jews to Christ, of the simple, of the faithful, not of the 
poly, the, the politicized Zionist element of the Jewish world, we don't expect that to, uh, that to, to change much. But the, the simple uh, Jewish people who are, many of them trying to be sincere to their fathers in ignorance of Christ, there are such people, and they will return and turn to Christ in the end. The, uh, the very appearance of, of the Antichrist, of course, and there is, in his appearance, there will be three and a half years where he will be without persecution, he will be friendly, he will be beloved, he will, people will flock to him as a savior, and he will be a ruler of the world, and religiously and politically he will be revered. In that three and a half years, there will be no overt persecution, overt persecution. Uh, there probably will be covert. And then three and a half years of terrible uh, persecution of the Christians. That's the time of the appearance of Antichrist. So that obviously has to happen before the second coming. There will be multiplication of wickedness and the growing cold of love. We've already seen that in many ways in our world. There will be a torrent of bloodshed, wars, rumors of wars. We see that going on and have. Uh, I think you can include the whole 20th century in that. I mean, the untold deaths, millions and millions and millions of people who've died. The two world wars were unprecedented in the history of the world uh, in, in terms of their, 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 uh, their reach around the world and the war that happened. But we're also talking about wars right now. We have rumors of wars all the time. People expecting uh, conflict. Many people right now, even as we speak in the Middle East, uh, in Russia and Turkey and all the rest. So that's already happening. I think the love of many has grown cold in many ways because of the impersonal way of our life, the lack of community, the individualism. All that leads to a fear of the other. When you live in a community, you know everyone. You're on a mountain like top like we are here. And the whole village is practically your relatives. The fear of the other is really not present on a daily basis. All that's been uprooted. People have been thrown into the cities. And in the cities, life becomes impersonal. And there, slowly, slowly, wickedness multiplies because the love of, of men has grown cold. And one leads to the other. They're, they go together. You can see that in many places around the world because of the way of life. And because of urbanization, because of the loss of faith, many, many things. The appearance of calamity, such as starvation and sickness. We see that right in front of us with this supposed pandemic. Global phenomenon. Uh, not really a pandemic, of course. It's not even near the numbers that would be required for us to call it a pandemic. That's why it's a plandemic for many people. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. And the, there's, uh, in the sense that people are using this appearance of a worldwide sickness for very nefarious goals. And the, uh, the, the looming mass starvation, we see people in the United Nations coming out and saying now there will be mass starvation because of the economic crisis. So there's signs right there. And again, really you could not speak until the 20th, 21st century uh, of... A global phenomenon. I mean, the whole globe, the whole world, right? In the ancient world, when they talk about the whole world, they didn't actually mean the physical world because there was really no the new uh, the new lands, the, the the continents in the West were not discovered for the most part. It was just not a part of the whole picture. So we're 
we're in the 20th, 21st century, most of, especially now, we're talking about global events, global phenomenon. And so that really makes, I think, a difference in terms of these signs, what they mean for us. Uh, of course, the sign, the final sign will be the appearance. Uh, but before, before that, there's going to be signs of the darkening of the moon and the sun, the stars falling from the sky, the passing away of heaven and earth, all of these Tra- tra- very traumatic events that will happen before the second coming. And then the sign of the Son of Man, the true cross, which will appear in heaven just imminently before his return. So we will know that things are very near when we see all this, even at the doors. But it's, the Lord says in the scriptures, you will see some of these things, but it's not yet the end. All right, so there's a spectrum, there's a it's a plane out, and it does have a process. There is a process to it. So, as is common in pro- prophetic-related things, the prophets see things far in advance, and yet they see them as imminent, when in fact, chronologically, they could be many years out. But be- because they see them both as a prophecy, but also as, as a, uh, let's say, as an, uh, a seed... They see the whole tree before them, even though the, the, the seed there or the, the, the tree had just come out and they're budding. You, as the, when they talk about these things, they talk about it as if the tree has already grown to great, la- great heights and, uh, and the tree is, is giving forth a great fruit, uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, so the, the things still have to play themselves out, even though they see these things. So we heard, I remember hearing back in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, of people telling me, well, you know, back in 90, 1990, 91, 92, whatever, 85, I don't, I don't, it's hard to say exact dates, but they were telling me, well, yeah, Elder Ephraim came to us and sat us here in northern Greece, and he said, your children will see the, see the days of Antichrist. And so that's, what, almost 30-plus years ago that the Elder says that. And those for those people who heard that prophecy and that like it's like a prophecy, right? It's it's a prophetic uh, foretelling of what we're going to see in the immediate future. Uh, they've lived 25, 30, 35 years with that expectation. It might seem as if, where is this coming? And yet, again, it's it's coming. The process is unfolding. We aren't seeing a return. We're seeing only going forward in the same trajectory. Uh, so the mystery of repentance, I want to end on that because it's really important. The mystery of repentance here is what's behind us not knowing the exact date because with repentance, salvation comes and the end is pushed back and with the lack of repentance, iniquity rises and the end draws near. So this is at the heart. There, we have the mystery of iniquity, we have the mystery of salvation, Right? And we have the mystery of repentance, which is kind of between the two, whether that's coming or going, whether that's that's happening in the world. And remember, repentance is not a decision only. It's a way. It's a stance. It's a state. It's a way of being, a way of living. When we think of repentance, remember, not a feeling of remorse. That's not repentance. People can have remorse and not change their ways, right? Repentance is a reorientation, a whole change of perspective, a change of orientation to Christ. That's when we're changing our ways, living for Christ. That whole uh, 
reorientation, that, that change of orientation is what repentance is all about. So let's not be confused, right? And that's the basis of whether there's salvation, the mystery of salvation is being worked out or whether there is the mystery of iniquity because people who are not turned toward Christ, not repenting, uh, not having a change of mind and heart, uh, not reorienting themselves to Christ, well, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're in apostasy. They're in a path of disintegration, of delusion. They're losing their... The, the, themselves, their self-knowledge is not present, God's knowledge is not present, and of course the demons are able to work when we give them rights through our uh, lack of repentance and our lack of faith. So then we go to this next chapter, which is chapter 16, we're closing, getting close to the end of the book, we have three more sessions to go, and we're, in, we're, the, we're done with our, our uh, lessons for the fall, uh, and uh, we're talking about the thousand-year reign and the heresy of Hiliasmos, Hiliasm, uh, millennialism, uh, you could also possibly call it. Uh, uh, and the question is, will there be a 1,000-year reign on earth of our Lord? Well, is that possible? A 1,000-year reign, a literal 1,000 years of our Lord on this earth, enthroned, is that possible? That's what some of these heretics believe. It's an ancient heresy, Nothing really new. If our poor Protestants who believe in the thousand-year reign of our Lord on earth, if they had just read church history, they had just gone to the early teachers after the apostles and read up, they would have seen that this is an ancient heresy that was condemned by the Holy Fathers. Chiliasmos, chiliasm, chiliasm, how you want to pronounce it? I don't think it's a, I think it's a huh and not a ch. Uh, and uh, coming from the Greek. So uh, the entire ancient church rose up against these heretics, Gnostics, a form of, of Gnosticism. And they said that they're, they're taking the book of Revelation out of context. They're interpreting it as a literal thousand-year reign when it's not. It's referring to a significant, but, uh, I'm sorry, an infinite, un determined amount of years uh, the kingdom of Christ is not of this world so the reign of Christ is eternal right the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of God the kingdom of Christ these are synonymous and ultimately they're talking about the body of Christ they're talking about the first to the second coming and first of all, the kingdom is an internal kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it's over uh, the, the inner world of man. It's over the inner world of man. That's what happens. That's the first kingdom. That's the kingdom that we're talking about. That happens in the church. And it happens from the first to the second coming of our Lord. So it's not just a thousand years. It's an internal reign. And it's made up of those souls which have entered and lived in, in this present life. In other words, it begins now spiritually and it never ends. But it happens, it, 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 it's established and it's, the rain is happening in this life from the first to the second coming. With the second coming, of course, then we enter into eternity and the rain continues eternally. So we're talking about 
the first of the second comings. That's the time of the body of Christ. That's the time of the church. That's the time of the kingdom. And it's in the body of Christ that this kingdom is happening. And it has to be this way if, again, you understand freedom properly. And this is why these, these poor folk fall into delusion because they do not understand freedom. They teach things like what Calvin taught, which is abomination to our Lord. The idea that people are sent straight to hell from the very inception in the womb of their mother, they're already destined to hell. This is a, a demonic delusion. And so you can see there's a major problem with freedom. How do we understand the freedom of man? We see this also with the various teachings about predestination in the various forms, not just in the Calvinistic form, but in the various other forms that come down to us, even from uh, times of uh, Augustine, where his teaching is giving impetus toward this direction. And after after the schism, things really take off in the West. You have lots of misinterpretations of this question of grace and freedom. In any case, this is where I think the root of the problem is. And... If we hear a little bit what the elder says, let's get more specific here. What is this kingdom? Where do we enter it? How do we, uh, how do we uh, enter into it? It takes place only through the labor of regeneration or the birth from above. And of course, we're talking about baptism, not just the external reality, but the internal reality that's communicated through the mystery. Uh this is a true resurrection from the dead. This baptism is seen as a kind of resurrection. <clears throat> and when the Apostle Paul says, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light, he has in mind precisely this internal regeneration and resurrection through Christian baptism. For no one can enter the kingdom of Christ unless he has first been brought out from among the dead by Christian baptism. And again, we could begin, I'm not going to get into it because we've done this many times, but again, we can see here clearly that, number one, this baptism happens only in the body of Christ. There are no mysteries outside the church. There are no baptisms among those which are not of the church uh, in terms of its true spiritual initiation into the kingdom. Uh, And that's when life in the kingdom begins when we're initiated in the church, in the life of the church, and therefore in the baptism of the church. Um, So the Holy Scripture talks in prophetic and symbolic terms. Again, in the book of Revelation here, we have references to what this thousand-year reign is really all about. And it says there that he will bind him for a thousand years, And he will cast the devil, the Lord, into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal upon him, that he should no longer deceive the nations till the thousand years be fulfilled. Obviously, this is talking about the reign of the church and the reign of Christ in the church in the hearts of all the faithful. That's where the devil has no entrance, no place, and cannot enter. He's bound Uh, So we're talking about those who live and reign with Christ in the thousand years of the church. Um, So we have a first and second comings is also mentioned in the scriptures. We have the first coming, 
I'm sorry, the first uh, resurrection, the first and second resurrections. And so you have baptism, which is the first. There is a first resurrection. And during this first resurrection, he will show reign with him a thousand years. We're talking about baptism. That's the first resurrection. And the second, of course, resurrection is the resurrection of the body. And that resurrection is given to all men. That resurrection is given to all men. Everyone will rise from the dead. No one will remain in the grave. That resurrection, however, can be, as we will see shortly, unto life or unto damnation or unto judgment. So this is a spiritual reign of the church, this thousand years. It's from the first to the second coming. And then the judgment is at the end here. One little note, uh, our, our, our translation is a little bit faulty because we were just taking from the book, the uh, King James in our, in our original translation. And they unfortunately translate Hades, Ave, Avis, as hell. And of course, that's not hell. Hades is not hell. Hades is the state of those awaiting the resurrection, awaiting the uh, uh, before Christ. Uh, and that was delivered and cast into the lake of fire. That, that hell, hell is the lake of fire. <laughs> Hell is the place of the gnashing of the teeth, the, uh, the place where those who become like the demons go. Right? It's prepared, he says, the Lord says in Scripture, prepared for the demons and the devil. So anyone who ends up in hell is because they become like demons and like the devil. They embrace the passions. They live for the passions. They, they resemble that which... Uh, the, that which the fallen angels live. So that is, that is not uh, what they're talking about here in this scriptural passage. And so it's important to, to make that distinction here. And uh, you can see I've crossed it out and put Hades is what death and Hades were cast into the lake, right? So those who are uh, with Christ are no longer in a place like Hades, but in a place of refreshment, in a foretaste of the resurrection the second resurrection of the body. They already have a foretaste when they depart this life. Their souls are in refreshment as our saints are. Obviously, the saints are not in Hades. They're in uh, communion with God eternally at the throne of God, and they're awaiting this, this, the, the second resurrection of the body. So there's a second death. There's a first death, which would be a spiritual death. There's a second death, which is the um, eternal death. I'm sorry, the first death is the body, the second death is the eternal death uh, of the soul which goes into hell with the demon. So, we can ascertain from the following, from this passage, according to the elder. This is our summary for this chapter. The thousand-year reign of Christ is a period in which Christ has bound the power of the devil over men. At the end of this period, the devil will reign, will, I'm sorry, the devil will again be lord over men, in other words, those men who will embrace him and oppress, he will oppress them, but this is only for a season. And of course, the, this period ends at the end of time when men have apostatized from God and the, the, those who follow the devil are ruling the world 
and the working for the imminent ascent of the man of iniquity, the Antichrist. That's the period we're talking about. That's the very end of the world. And there are many signs that we can see that are pointing to uh, this being rather imminent. But again, we do not know the exact end. The members of this kingdom will be those who alone do not submit to the beast and accept his engraved seal and who have put uh, who have a part in the first resurrection, that is, baptism and regeneration in Christ in the church. Those are the ones in the kingdom, this thousand-year reign of Christ. Those who are not worthy of this resurrection, in other words, they did not repent, they did not turn to Christ, they were not baptized, they did not enter into the life of the church, they will be raised at the end of the thousand years, that is, the second resurrection, as this resurrection relative to the first is the second so that's the body of the resurrection. And all will be raised at that time. Death will have no power over the sharers in the thousand-year reign. And so those, those who are truly in the body have been regenerated, have enjoyed the first resurrection, that is the baptism and the mysteries, the grace. Death has no power over them. We need to, like, somebody needs to get on the rooftop and shout that out to all Orthodox Christians today. Death has no power over you. Do not fear it. Do not fear it. Do not fear it. Uh, and do not go to the Holy Temple in fear. That's, that's the most important that we can take away. God forbid. At the end of these thousand years, and after a gruesomely violent persecution against the saints, the devil and his followers will be cast into the lake of fire, the second death. At the end of the thousand years, in other words, the second coming. From this it should be clear that the thousand-year kingdom is nothing else but the kingdom of God. So the thousand-year reign presupposes the first resurrection, right? It presupposes the first resurrection. In other words, baptism. The second resurrection is that which was spoken of by Martha when he, she says, I know that he shall rise again at the resurrection on the last day. So think of the second resurrection as the resurrection on the last day, the general resurrection of all men from the grave before, uh, at the sec- after the second coming, time of the second coming. In other words, eternity then begins in earnest. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Um, the end times are described here. The letting loose of the devil to deceive with power to assault and oppress Christians in the person of the Antichrist, the beast of the false prophet. That's also apparent from the scriptural passage. The duration of this period will be brief and yet will constitute one of the signs signaling the immediacy of the second coming of Christ. And that's really important. When we enter this period of persecution and there will be a a manifest antichrist there's no other time that we're going to we don't have a thousand years or 500 years or 300 years or 30 years we have the seven years of the antichrist when that begins all right so that's that's the question when does that begin well it'll be apparent it's not going to be a mystery if the antichrist has come and he's reigning christians will have the eyes to see the world will be rejoicing when the Christians will be in uh, horror of the apostasy of mankind. That's not yet. We're not there yet. 
So the, the there will be an immediate time, right? So there could still be another untold number of years until we enter that time where then we can say we are immediately before the second coming. Signs are many, but again, signs come and the repentance, if it's there, pushes those the signs back, the realization of what those signs are pointing toward back. So we have a first resurrection of the body, of the baptism, we have a second resurrection of the body, right? First baptism, second body. We have a first death, which is the bodily death, and you have a second death, which is the spiritual, eternal death, the hell, in other words. And the second death has no power over those made worthy of the first resurrection. Hell, eternal separation, damnation, has no power over those who've been made worthy of the first resurrection. That's the mystery that's being preached here. Hopefully this is going to help. I'm sure we know, we've heard this, we kind of know it, but hopefully these words, this presentation by Elder Cleopa, gives us a lot of clarity. It becomes like a signpost on our way, right? So when we encounter the various theories and fears of Protestants or Orthodox, whoever it is that's not informed, we can immediately separate them into our categories here. No, this is not possible because we're talking about this, it's the thousand-year reign, it's the baptism. That's why we're studying this, to be uh, have clarity in our mind and not be deceived. Not be deceived. The Lord talks about the spiritual state. He talks about it in Scripture as well. The imagery of the dead, uh, the spiritual death that one has when they're not regenerated. Uh, so he says, for instance, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. So he uses this phrase here, this terminology to describe the spiritual death of those who are indifferent to truth, who don't want to follow Christ, who don't, aren't interested in Christ and the Messiah, eternal life. They're already dead spiritually. He says, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, in me shall never die. What's he talking about? If you, if you didn't understand the double meaning here of death and life or resurrection, you wouldn't make any sense of this. He says, even though they're dead, they're alive? What's he talking about? He says, they shall never die? But I thought you said that even though they're dead, how can they never die? So here we, see, we have to have the interpretive keys understand what the Lord's talking about. Uh, even though they died, in other words, the body is separated from the soul, that bodily death, even though that happens, they're living. Of course they're living, because they're already in Christ, they've already been resurrected. The first resurrection of baptism and the mysteries and life in Christ. And then he says, well, it shall never die. Well, they shall never die what? Not that the soul will not be separated from the body, but they'll never die spiritually. They're going to live already in the kingdom. From this life, already we enter the kingdom and we live that spiritual reality. And therefore, the bodily, uh, the separation of the body from the soul is not for us anything but a passive, a pass, passageway to heaven. It's a, it's a doorway that opens up and guides us into the eternal realm. And then we await with the saints the second uh, resurrection, which is the bodily resurrection, or if we're alive at the second coming, as the Lord, as Saint Paul talks about, we're caught up in the air, not the rapture of the Protestants, but the resurrection, the uh, 
beginning of the resurrection of all men, the first fruits, right there. Uh, so, so although this is an important point, although the duration of the reign of Christ is designated on the whole as a thousand years, we should understand this to signify an era, a time span, immeasurable. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? But it's true. It's a time span that's not measured. It is still in time, though. It begins in time, we should say, right? An era of immeasurable, uh, immeasurable and undesignated. That's the first to the second coming. Nobody knows exactly the time. It's not going to be a thousand years. It's already been 2,000 and, well, I don't know, 20 or so years. Uh, and so it's not a literal chronological you know, time span uh, that you can pinpoint. It will be a chronological time span, but you can't pinpoint the end because of the mystery of repentance that we talked about, the mystery of salvation working out, and the mystery of iniquity that has yet to be fulfilled. So its length is nothing less, nothing else except the period between the first and the second comings of our Lord. That's the period of the consolidation of the kingdom of God until his second coming. And our Kakadox friend comes back and says, more Kakadoxy. And he says, well, okay, fine, I hear all that. But look, I got another question because look, I don't really, I'm not buying this. Uh, Okay, so seeing that it will be inaugurated at the second coming, preceded by the resurrection of the righteous, who in turn will reign with Christ for a thousand years, after which will occur the resurrection of sinners, the judgment, and the end of Christ. I mean, just like he's not even listening to the elder. And he says this erroneous understanding. He's looking at chapter 20. This is where they talk about this. Chapter 20 um, in Revelation. So he says again, in other words, the just join the choir of the righteous at the beginning of the thousand-year reign, and the sinful uh, an assembly of their own at the end of the thousand-year period. So let's hear what the elder has to say to this kakadoxy. He says, look, I've already explained this to you. The millennium is a mystically and symbolically means an indeterminate number of years. Uh, there are exalted and spiritual meanings here that you're not understanding. And they often are completely different from what they are readily appear to be. So how can we explain the book of Revelation literally when it is bound with seven seals? What is the red horse that is like unto fire? And what are the seven angels who are given seven plagues? How should we understand them? Obviously, not as you are understanding them, which is without a spiritual uh, understanding. He says, look, if, if we were to speak of uh, two resurrections at the end of the world, and thus, according to them, somehow a third coming of the Lord must take place. It doesn't dawn on these folks. I think it's mainly the folks who are millennialists and the rapture. They talk about the rapture and these things. It doesn't dawn on them that they have a they posited a third coming of our Lord, right? We have the coming where He takes His faithful away and reigns on earth, and then you have another coming supposedly or something. <clears throat> uh, 
the Lord says, Verily, verily, about his two resurrections, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on me, on, on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Are we listening to that? That's that's the beginning of eternal life right here in what? In the first resurrection, baptism. Verily, verily I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. Now is. It's not going to happen after tribulation, da, 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 da. Now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. What's he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual resurrection. They've been raised from the death of sin. Christian baptism. The resurrection of those who will hear the voice of the Son of God now is. It's not the last resurrection, but the present resurrection we're talking about. Now, we go to the second resurrection. And let's hear what we have there from our Lord in John 5, 28, 29. Uh, it's now is and yet will happen at the end of the world, which is not of the soul, but of the body, of the dead in the graves. This is the second resurrection. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good in the resurrection of life and they that have done evil in the resurrection of damnation. So also rise, clearly we're talking about the body resurrection here, also rise, and those who've done good, in other words, those who've loved truth, loved Christ, lived for Christ. It's not a moralism here. He's not teaching a moralism. But he's teaching done good in the sense of the, the, they have the Spirit of God in them and the, the works that they have done are of the Spirit of God. This is the, this is the, the witness that they have that says that they're of God. Even the spirit that speaks in them, Abba, Father, according to the Apostle Paul, right? The uh, you have those that will come forth under resurrection of life. Everyone will be resurrected. Those will go under resurrection of life, and those who've not, who've not loved truth, not lived for truth, not done the works of the disciple of Christ. Uh, they will go unto a resurrection of judgment. The Greek here actually is krisis, krisios. And that is literally the word means separation. It means that they'll be separated from, like when we see the sheep from the goats, we call that, the day, we, we remember that passage on the <clears throat> Sunday before Great Lent, the Sunday of the, of the last judgment, the second coming. That is red, and it's because they're separated, right? That's the krisi, that's judgment. Judgment is separation. Uh, it's, it's a time of separation. We're actually living through a kind of judgment right now. We see that going on in the world and in the church right now. A separation is happening. The faithful and the unfaithful, the sheep and the goats, it's happening all the time, of course, but even more so uh, in the end times, it will happen more and more. There will be a separation. It's happening right now. All this is a test that we're living through. Who will be faithful? And we will be surprised. We will be very surprised. Uh, as Metropolitan Yofu uh, Morfu says in uh, one of his homilies, 
Isn't it interesting now, we see people in Greece, we've seen this phenomenon, I don't know about in America, but I think so, uh, of these kind of what we would consider, church people would consider worldly people, you know, actors or something, and they, they come out and they, they confess their faith, and they say, I believe in the Holy Communion, I believe in, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed, and, and we should have, the churches should be open. We saw this in Greece, P- people who are actors on TV here, they came out and said this. And yet you have many bishops who are saying nothing of the sort, who close the doors, keep people away, and do not resist the state and all the rest. So we will be surprised. The judgment will bring out many things. Uh, It's a mystery of freedom. Somebody's writing about this being very sad in their church. Uh, Joan, uh, this is something that's going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. It's up to every one of us to choose the narrow path. And that's, uh, that's a part of the freedom of humanity. What will we do? And what will we choose? So the judgment is happening all the time. It's also going to happen very clearly at the end. Uh, and... We will be surprised how many will come on the path of the narrow path and how many will not. How many who have taught us even perhaps the faith. Bishops, priests, deacons, teachers of the faith, how they may not follow the path. God forbid that we are among that lot. God help us to remain on the narrow path and have eyes to see and be vigilant, prayerful. Every day, night and day, Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me. I put a video up on Recently, of the elder Ephraim, it's been circulating for quite some time now, but I put it up again on social media when he's talking about the prayer. Um, it's so beautiful. It's in Greek. I think there's one circulating that actually has subtitles. And he says, Look, if you're saying the prayer, if you're saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy me night and day, and you're saying, Most holy Theotokos, intercede for us, save us, intercede and save us. Uh, there's no way you're going to be lost, he says. I love it. It's so simple and beautiful and, and true because we trust our Lord. He will save us, but we have to call upon him night and day. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Like the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me in thy kingdom. That's, our, that's, that's the position, the stance, the way of the repentant. The Pharisee is the one who says, ah, I'm good. I'm good. I got it in my pocket. Everything's taken care of. I've done what I need to do. I'm a good person. I give. I I, I work. I, I serve the church. I know theology. I've got a PhD. I'm good. Right? That's the Pharisee. That's the deluded one. The one who's... You can be a PhD and, and still not be deluded. I'm not saying... But I mean, if you think in those terms, right, then you're lost. It's, we're all unworthy Poor Christians, poor, 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 poor Christians at the end times. What do we have to show for ourselves? Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. So this is the judgment on the life and the judgment on the uh, resurrection. I say in the life and the resurrection on the judgment. He will raise all the dead from the graves. This passage outright excludes the possibility of there being a period of a thousand years between the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the sinful, for it clearly shows 
that the last or general resurrection is one and only and will happen to all. All right? So this is this 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 idea that they'll be resurrected or they'll be thrown into heaven with the and, and spared the judgment, uh, the uh, tribulation, it's nonsense. It's a demonic delusion. It's a sad, tragic thing. Millions of people reading, what are they called? The Left Behind series. It's just a mythology. It's a total delusion. Christians will suffer in this world from the beginning to the end. We suffer spiritually, internally, when we see sin ruling, when we... We suffer for our own sins. We suffer for the sins of the world. We suffer for our, our brothers and sisters. Love means to suffer. This is, the, this is the message of the cross. If you have love, you suffer. So the fact that they, they think they're going to avoid the suffering, they're going to be raptured before the tribulation, that alone should tell us right off the bat, delusion, delusion, far away from us, flee. We will... This idea that we can avoid persecution and suffering is demonic. The Lord says you will have suffering, you will have tr- uh, grieve, grievance in this world. But and yet, that's at the same time, you will have this joy of the resurrection that's already in this world. At the same time. Wh- wh- why do we talk about in the Orthodox Church during Holy Week? Charmolipi in Greek. Charmolipi. In other words, joyful sadness or um, sorrowful joy it could be translated as right it's 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 this intermingling and here we are holy week is just a, a small snapshot of our life right we stand in holy week uh the whole service is all of that if we stand there attentively mindful of all that we're hearing and listening and and praying we will see that that's our life that's not one week out of the year that's the way it is for every christian we stand at the cross with with and, and we see the crucifixion uh, of our Lord, but also of the church in the world. There's never been a time the church hasn't been in, really persecuted in this world. You know, I mean, we can talk about the, the golden age of the fourth century. Guess what? Most of that age of the fourth century was suffered through. Learn about the history of the fourth century. That is not the, that's the golden age, but the golden age is one of suffering. Of confession, of martyrdom, uh, of Arian Arian uh, um, emperors persecuting the church, and yet it's the golden age of the church. So, this is the second resurrection, the general resurrection, and of course there can't be anything after that. That's the end. That's the judgment. All right, uh, so summary here. The 1,000-year period should be understood as extending between the first resurrection, Christian baptism, and the second resurrection. Um, St. Paul is referring to the resurrection of the just who have fallen asleep in the Lord and not the resurrection of sinners. So that's to you know, correct his under- misunderstanding of St. Paul above. Uh, the uh, St. Paul is also speaking here of many orders analogous to degrees of holiness or sinfulness with which they will be revealed. For one differeth from one glory and one another in glory. So the Lord has many mansions in heaven. And that's the differentiation that he's talking about. 
Uh, the second coming is one date for all, all nations, right? Separation, crisis. They will be separate from one another. That's a crisis, that's separation, that's judgment. And that's going to be all nations, the end of time. Uh, so all of these things happen once. One at, once, the last advent of Christ. Once is the resurrection and appearance of all before the king and judge. And once is the judgment. This doesn't happen twice. So you can't have you can't have one now for some people and one for another time. Uh, there's another question here. I don't know if it's really that beneficial. Uh, let's see here if we want. We're already five twelve. I'm sorry, five five twelve. My my client, my time here. Um, so he says here. I think this is interesting. We have, have only two periods, really, that we can, two major periods that we can divide history into old covenant and new covenant. Before the first, the coming, and, and from the first coming to the second coming. Uh, there will be another age after the second coming, but that's an everlasting age. That's begun in the church. The first fruits, first fruits are in the church. And this is the, as it were, the waiting room of the kingdom. Uh, so they're in the Old Testament passage of the Old Testament these cannot be understood as if they're magical but either but are either factual or symbolic like the book from which they were derived uh, so this is against this subjective symbolic interpretations of the creation account for instance well, listen to what he says about this this is the patristic mind here he says how can someone know that the six days of creation were in actuality some 7,000 years, and that each represent a great duration of time for humanity, or even 1,000 years. So this subjective interpretation of the creation account, for example, Elder Cleopa rejects. It has to be both and. It has to be, there are literal creation days. We do not do away with them. And yet, they also have a symbolic and a uh, uh, teaching involved, but they don't do away with that. We don't do away with that. We don't say, people say, well, Adam wasn't a hu real human being. On what basis can they say that? There's no basis to say that. They're just a subjective, uh, non-Christian, non-Orthodox interpretation. Uh, so <clears throat> we have to always remember that. It's both and in our interpretations. We don't do away with the, the, the factual historical reality of our Lord, His coming, or Adam, or any of the prophets, or the second coming. Those are all historical, in-time events. All right, I think we need to end it there. It's not, let's see if there's anything really I want to make sure I don't want to miss. Um, maybe just read the last chapter, the last paragraph, and then we'll go to questions. The everlasting reign of Jesus Christ was announced in advance by the archangel Gabriel. It is true, as St. Paul says, that Christ will subject, be subjected in everything to the Father, and that afterward he will subject everything to himself. All will be subjected to Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. I've often wondered about that. When we know that people deny Christ, blaspheme him, very interesting that, as we said, I think in a previous session, I can't remember it. Uh, it's all they're all merging into one now, all of these different uh, lessons. But um, 
that's how we understand that passage, that in spite of themselves, but also through their own admission, that's what hell will be. It will be regret, a gnashing of the teeth, that now they see clearly the truth and they did not embrace it, they did not love it. And so all will be submitted to Christ. This means the submission of the entire world before the Father and the secession of his redemptive activity.